You know, I, I read recently that there's a shipwreck off the coast of Colombia. I can't give you the exact coordinates, so if you're thinking about going after it, um, yeah. I think the Colombian government actually has already decided that it's theirs. Um, I don't know how international waters and all that work, but yeah, they're going after it. They're going to bring it up. They're going to bring all of the uh, gold and silver, which is estimated to be worth about $20 billion. Yeah. People have been looking for that wreck for a long, long time, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, treasure hunters are just so common among us, aren't they? When, when, whenever there's something, there's a gold rush, people are on their way, you know, to, to, to California or up into Alaska or some jungle somewhere, some malaria-filled jungle. Pretty soon they're going to be putting people on asteroids in order to mine the wealth. I mean, wherever there is a treasure... There will be some human somewhere, or probably many human beings, going after that treasure. Should we? Should we as Christians be concerned with treasure? Be careful how you answer that in case you were going to blurt something out. Because I'm maybe not going to say what you think I'm going to say. Because the truth of the matter is I think we should be concerned with treasure. I think we should be the ultimate treasure hunters of all of all peoples that, that that we have our sights set on something with such a passion such a greediness that it would put everybody else to shame like the, like the, I don't care if a guy spent 40 years mining for gold in Alaska without another soul to talk to his greed would not even begin to compare with ours here's what Jesus says he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field huh treasure so which a man found and covered up, sneaky little guy, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now what does that say to you? It says to you that, that the kingdom of heaven is such a great treasure that we ought to just want it with all of our passion and that Jesus holds it out that way to us. He doesn't want us to be indifferent about us. He doesn't want us to say, oh, well, I don't really want to be selfish about it, so you, you take the kingdom of heaven, I, I'll be fine without it. No, he wants us to long for that, to be greedy for that. And when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're not just talking about eternity. We're not just talking about salvation. That's part of the whole. But really, the kingdom of heaven begins when Christ starts to rule our lives, not just in the individual heart of, of the believer, but together. Like the church is the focal point of God's kingdom in this world as his kingdom spreads out. So we should be greedy for what the church, the kingdom of heaven, holds for us. Yeah? You track, you, you see where I'm going, right? Boy, it got quiet. I'm going to go with the idea that you really are on to me here and that you understand where we're going. So uh, get greedy for the partnership of Christ's kingdom. We're at the end of Colossians. Yes, we are finishing Colossians today. Can you believe it? And um, Paul finishes out with greetings. Greetings to people, greetings from people, and then he, then he, then he gives kind of a benediction, and we're done. And you might look at this passage and think, well, is there really anything in here of spiritual importance? After all, it's just kind of pro forma. It's how you end the letter with greetings and whatnot. Maybe there's nothing more to it than that. But I think there is. I think there, that Paul is looking at a partnership that he has that he considers of great wealth to himself 
that he's sort of sharing in and he's trying to connect a lot of that treasure all kind of in, in, in one closing here. And when you look at that, when you see how Paul values it, it gives us kind of a blueprint of how we ought to be greedy for the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. So first of all, when you're, when you're trying to work up your greed, when was the last time you heard that in church? We've got to work up our greed. First of all, consider the value of those who suffer with you. Consider the value of those who suffer with you. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. You all remember old Aristarchus. That's one of those top Bible names that probably comes to mind when you think of biblical characters, correct? Like, who is Aristarchus? I'm guaranteeing 99 out of 100 people are going, who is Aristarchus? Well, you'll be forgiven for not remembering him, but we actually know a fair amount about Aristarchus. Yeah, you go back to Acts 19. You don't have to turn there now, but just take my word for it for now and then look it up later. But in Acts 19... Paul is about to be pummeled by the people of Ephesus. How many remember the riot at Ephesus? You know, great is uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, and they're rioting, and they're looking for Paul because they're going to tear him limb from limb if they get a hold of him. Well, they don't get a hold of Paul. That's one of the times Paul kind of, you know, was being kept back, and he didn't, he didn't get, you know, stoned to death or whatever the case might be, but they got a hold of a couple other guys. There was one guy whose name was Gaius. Gaius. He was one of the two, and then... Can you guess who the other one was? Aristarchus. Yeah, Aristarchus. They brought him in there, and he, he faced the mob. Uh, we learned that he was a Thessalonian in Acts chapter 20. He's part of the entourage. Remember that big entourage going back to Jerusalem? Yeah, is that starting to be familiar territory? Paul was going back to Jerusalem. He had witnessed and established so many churches, and he's bringing back an offering, and he's bringing back people who represent all the work he's done. Aristarchus was one of the 20. Paul gets back to Jerusalem. Paul gets arrested. You remember that? He spends a couple years um, at Caesarea. Then pretty soon he's off then. It's not really soon. It's a couple years. Then he's off to Rome, and there's the shipwreck and all of that. And then he gets to Rome, and he's writing this letter to Colossians from that Roman imprisonment. And who is still with him? Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. All right. Now you're starting to think, hey, this Aristarchus guy, he was pretty cool. I mean, he could have left temporarily and come back. I don't know, but I don't think so because Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. As far as we know, he wasn't officially arrested. But he was, in another sense, arrested. He was captive to Jesus Christ. And in his captivity to Christ, he longed to share that, that space with Paul. He was, a, he was one of the, Paul's disciples, and he was willing to, to hang in there with him, to limit his freedom, to be there. It's like, like, I don't know if he brought him you know, his daily bread or the, or the newspaper or what it was, but he was right there with Paul all those years. It's kind of an amazing story. Paul taught in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So part of this treasure of the kingdom of heaven that we're supposed to really long for, that that we would go and sell everything we have for, part of that treasure is that there are people who will suffer with you, who will suffer alongside when you're in need. How many friends do you have like that outside of the church? How How many, you can probably count them on one hand, the people that you would say, man, if I was really going through hardship, that that person or those persons would be close to me. 
Jesus nourishes the body through every joint and ligament, Paul says in Colossians. And this is part of the way he does it. And I wonder if Paul has Aristarchus even in mind when he, uh, when he was thinking of those joints and ligaments. Who are the Aristarchuses around you? If you look around you, you'll see them. They're part of the body, and we, and we should be greedy for that. Okay, consider the value of redeemed failures. It says, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. How many remember Mark? Yeah, yeah okay. Mark remembers Mark. This is good. He... See? He's with us. How many remember Mark? Though for the, From the scripture, do you, you, you remember who Mark is? Uh, Mark was a bit of a wimp. Uh, Mark's... Well, I don't mean that, Mark. Come on. Give me a break. I would never say Mark's a wimp. Um, yeah, sometimes if there's water between him and the green, he does lay up. But uh, aside... <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. I got to get back to the real Mark. The... the uh, okay, so anyway, he, the, the Mark of the Scripture, John Mark, we'll, we'll, we'll say John Mark because that was his name, um, he was a little bit of a wimp because he went on the first missionary journey. He really didn't get very far on that journey. They got through Cyprus. They did some work on Cyprus, but then he turns around and turns tail and, and, and goes home. Um, then uh, then we, we find out, uh, Luke relates in, in Acts 13, 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga at Pamphylia, and John, that's John Mark, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He ran home to Mama. I mean, we know, we know in fact, that, that his mother owned a home there in Jerusalem because that was the house that, that Peter went to after he'd been arrested, and, and he was freed by the angel. And he goes and he knocks on the door, and Rhoda's there, but she doesn't open the door. She goes back. You, that story? That's John Mark's mother's home. Yeah. Um, and for whatever reason, he, he, he leaves. When he gets to Perga at Pamphylia, he goes, goes back home. And it's not just any sort of, you know, when you first read it, you think, well, maybe they sent him. It doesn't really say whether it's a bad leaving or a good leaving. We find that out later when they go on the second missionary journey. I should say when they almost go on the second missionary. Paul goes on a second missionary journey, and Barnabas does too, but they're two separate second missionary journeys because they can't agree about John Mark. And Barnabas is like, let's take him along. And Paul was like, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not taking him. He, he deserted us. So it's very clear that that was an unhappy sort of desertion. But John Mark, though he had a rough start of it, proves himself. And we see this several times through the course of the New Testament. Peter, in 1 Peter, mentions the fact that uh, he is his son, not, not his literal son, but figuratively that he is Peter's son in the faith, as it were. Paul mentions him here favorably in the book of Colossians. When we get to the end of Paul's life, near the, the moment of his execution at the hands of Nero, uh, he writes this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Oh, and by the way, Mark writes the Gospel of Mark. So how about that? How's that for a good finish? That's, that's a very, very good finish considering where he stuck, where he started. When we become part of the people of God, you know, our growth in Christ is just this straight, linear, perfect 
glide path upward, right? Isn't that how most of you Christians have experienced? You started here and you just, you, your life was just one steady growth moment after a... How, how many maybe feel a little bit like John Mark? How many, are, how many of you feel like late bloomers or, uh, you know... Um, also ran or recovering losers or, you know, you struck out nine times at bat. The church is made up of a lot of us that are in that camp. And believe it or not, the redemption of, of those kinds of people, those sorts of failures, is part of the treasure of the church. In, in uh, Mark's gospel, there's a kind of a funny story that you've probably read and scratched your head about. You know what I'm talking about? Are you on to me? Mark's gospel, he's the only one that records this. It says, um, well, I'll just read it to you. And a young man followed him. This is during the arrest of, of Jesus. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Who is this unnamed person? 99% chance that's John Mark. That's why he doesn't mention him by name. That's how he knows of the story. That's why he's the only gospel writer who records it. Because I think he had a good sense of humor about himself to one extent. Plus he's like, yeah, that's that's me. (laughs) If somebody did something stupid, it was probably me. And think of the encouragement it would have been in the early church. You're in the early church and you're surrounded by giants like, you know, Paul and Peter and those kinds of guys. Oh, they never mess up, do they? And, uh, and you're, just, you know, you're just starting and stopping and growing and falling backward and, and, and you start to lose courage. And, and they say, hey, you need to talk to John Mark. And John Mark's like, well, hey, you want to hear about the time that I ran away from Jesus naked? Or... Uh, <laughs> Have you heard the Perga Pamphylia story? Because I got time. I can, I, you want to hear about failures? I can tell you failures. And yet Christ redeemed him and used him miraculously for the benefit of God's people. That's the treasure of the church. Consider the value of consolation. Paul rounds out the um, first sort of, he, if you group these things, this is sort of the first grouping of greetings, and, uh, and he says this, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So you've got Aristarchus, you've got Mark, and you've got Jesus, a.k.a. Justice. Uh, they probably have that name attached there to make sure that we don't think that they're talking about the Jesus. There are a lot of people with the name Jesus back in the day. And what Paul tells us is that these men were part of the circumcision. Does anybody know what that means? It means that they were Jewish. They were absolutely uh, Jewish. We don't know a lot about Jesus, who is called Justice, but we know of these three men that they were co-workers with, with Paul. And he says, they have been a comfort to me. A comfort. The word is paragoria. How many grew up in the 60s and when you hear the word paragoria, you hear something that sounds familiar to you? Anyone? I'm th- is the term paragoric? I'm looking at my older folks. See, boys and girls, back before Imodium, um, there was a product called paragoric. And paragoric had opium in it. 
and we liked it. It, it worked for us. And then for some strange reason, they took it off the market you know, years later. But, but that word, it means solace. It means comfort. It means consolation. You can see why they, why they named that particular product there. That Paul, Paul needed comfort. Paul was a prisoner. He, he, yeah, it was not the worst imprisonment that Paul lived through. He had some freedoms, but he couldn't leave. He couldn't just go. He could have people come to him. He couldn't leave and go where he wanted to go, where he wanted to preach the gospel in Spain and places like that. So it was not a picnic. It was difficult. It lasted four to five years. Not 45, but four to five years. And what was his comfort? Now, I'm sure there were many comforts for Paul, but it's funny that right here he doesn't mention uh, the word of God even. He doesn't mention prayer. He doesn't mention his faith. What he calls his consolation at this particular point are these brothers who were with him, who were a consolation to him. You know, Christ says that he is the head of the body. Paul wrote that in Colossians. And that he ministers to the body. He supplies the body through every joint and ligament. Where is your consolation? It's your faith in Christ. Yes, it's the gospel. Yes, it's, it's all of those spiritual things that, that ultimately matter in, in the, to the greatest degree. But in the day-to-day, Christ ministers to us through his body. Or at least that's what's supposed to happen. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. There are a lot of, and we we take this back to the 60s with Eleanor Rigby, but um, there are a lot of lonely people in the world. And some of them are lonely through their own efforts, right? They've, they've sort of put themselves in that place. Others, perhaps, through no fault of their own, but they're very isolated people. Um, that's not how we are to live within the church. We are to live in a connected fashion. We are to be a consolation to one. Like, not everybody's always happy. Some people get down. Some people get discouraged. Some people this time of year suffer from sad. Are there any sad sufferers out there? Seasonal affective disorder, right? It's it's a bad time of the year. But you have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are there as a consolation, as a comfort to you. And when you're up, maybe you're really best at, you know, on June 20th, uh, and they're getting, you know, they're missing winter. I don't know. But, but there's a back and forth to it is the point. We are to be that consolation. That is part of the treasure that we have in the kingdom of heaven. How about this? Consider the value of those who care for your soul. Epaphras gets uh, two verses here. Remember who Epaphras is? You say, I don't remember. Okay, uh, we, at the very beginning of Colossians, we talked about Epaphras. He was the guy that church planted at Colossae. He was their missionary. He was their first founding pastor, and he cared for them. Look what it says. Two whole verses are devoted to Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayer, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So, Epaphras... Epaphras loves the Colossians. He has been their 
pastor. He has been the guy that has cared. He's probably the guy who came back to Paul and went, Oh, Paul, I don't know what to do. You don't know what's going on in Colossae. There's these false teachers. And he is so exercised about that. He is struggling for them. His desire is that they'll be mature. That they're not going to be pulled away from all these, these false teachings of you know people trying to return to the ceremonial law. People trying to go into mystical experiences. He wants them to be rooted and grounded in Christ. The way Paul has written in the book of Colossians. And he is in prayer for them. He struggles for them. How many people care about you that way? How many people care for you that way? You probably have plenty of friends because you all look like very friendly, lovable people, so you have a lot of friends. But how many of your friends, how many people that you know that love you, agonize and care for your soul? In a biblical church, in a biblical church, there will be pastors and elders, which are the same office in the church. Uh, We tend to use the word pastor and elder as if they're distinct. Really, they're the same basic thing. There is to be a plurality of elders within the church who shepherd, who pastor the flock. And and they are to be there, to be engaged in, in, in concern and struggle and prayer for you. That is what a biblical church ought to look like. This is something we've worked hard at at Grace. I'm not saying we've, we're there and that we've you know, gotten you know, a, a blue ribbon for it or anything, but this is our desire. This has been our quest, and I trust that long after I'm gone, that will continue to be so. But this is what a partnership in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It looks like a place, a fellowship of God's people who are being shepherded, who are being cared for, who have people like Epaphras who love you and, and, and care for you and pray for you. And will, you know what? They might, even, they might even, if you're starting to wander away, they might come over and they might say something that offends you because they're trying to drag you back. If somebody loves you that much, to actually risk a relationship to come and say to you, brother, sister, I think you're in the wrong here. I think you need to repent. I think you need to come back to church. I think you need to be part of the body. I think you need to be there under the preaching of the word. And you're like, who are you to say that to me? They're just somebody who cares about your soul. That's who they are. And we need that. We should treasure that. If you're part of a church where that's happening, you should value that. Consider the value of negative examples. I know that's kind of a weird one. Why do you think it is that the Bible is so full of stories of people who started well and finished poorly? I mean, you got to love the redeemed failures. you got to love the marks. But you know from reading your Bible, it's not always the case that it's Mark we're talking about. Sometimes it's Saul, right? King Saul started good, crashed and burned. And you see other stories like that with the, with the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And then you get into the New Testament and you have someone like Judas. You know who Judas is, right? You know? Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So we know Luke. Luke wrote the book of Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Um, I never noticed before, but do you realize that this makes Luke and Mark um, share, tells us that Luke and Mark were sharing space together? Have you ever thought of that before? Two of the gospel writers uh, were close associates of Paul and spent time together. I think that's kind of an interesting thing to note of. But, but what we're really wanting to look at here is Demas. 
Who's Demas? Well, he was a co-worker of Paul. We don't know a huge amount about him, except he gets mentioned several times in the New Testament. He gets mentioned here in Colossians. He gets mentioned in the book of Philemon. And, of course, that's natural in a way because the, the guy, you know, Tychicus is taking the letter to the Colossians and he's carrying the letter of Philemon with him as well. Then all at once, the next time we run into him is in 2 Timothy 4. That's the last chapter that Paul will write. He is near his death. And here's what he says. For Demas, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He left. The Bible and church history suggest that he became apostate, that he utterly left the faith. I'd like to hope that that's not the case. I'd like to think that there was some later repentance, but that there's no indication that that's ever the case. In the course of my 30-some-odd years uh, at being a, a pastor, I've known people to leave my church. Shock. <laughs> I thought it was a shock, but apparently you don't consider it a shock. No, I've had people, I've been a, I've been a pastor of three different churches during the course, and, and I've seen people leave, and people leave for a great variety of reasons, and usually the grass is greener somewhere else, and they end up at another church. It hurts, but we go, God bless you, you know? God bless you. We don't wish anything ill on anyone. If, you, if you're getting fed or, you know, things are better over there at a different church, you know, okay, okay. We can accept that. What really hurts, though, is from time to time somebody that gets into a pattern of sin. Um, maybe, maybe there's nothing discernible except that they're drifting and eventually they leave and they don't go to another church. They, 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 just, they just seem to walk away from Christ. That's when it really absolutely breaks your heart. How can that be a treasure of the kingdom? I would say this. I would say this. Um, even in cases like that, we don't lose heart. When the bread disciples in John's gospel were leaving him, the ones that had followed him initially because he fed them, and then they start to turn away because Jesus was saying some hard stuff, he looks at his, his disciples and he says, well, are you going to leave too? That's not because Jesus didn't know the answer. It's because he's giving them a chance to fish or cut bait. It's like, are you leaving too? And they look at him and they say, where shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And so even when these bad things happen and people drift away and depart, as it were, from what looks like saving faith, um, it's a chance for us to clarify who we are. Though none go with me, still I follow. For time's sake, I'm going to simply uh, mention that Paul now greets a, a few different people, a few different situations there in the Lycos Valley. That's those three cities of Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis are part of a river valley area there in Asia Minor. And, uh, and so he greets a number of people that are there. He mentions a church that meets in the home of one person by the name of uh, Nympha. Um, and that tells you that a church, by the way, is not a building. A church is where people, a church, a church is the people who meet in a building or in a home or wherever they assemble themselves together in the Lord. Then we come to Colossians 4, 17. It says, And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now here's something interesting. Who is this Archippus character who suddenly pops up? We find him mentioned here. 
Um, and then again, he gets mentioned in the book of Philemon. Let me read the first two verses of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Now, whether it's true or not, it's hard to know, but given the fact that he mentions the house or household, and he mentions a, a man's name, Philemon, we know who he is, his, potentially his wife, Aphia, and then it could well be that Archippus is their son. That's a little speculation, but maybe not so far from the mark. What we find out, or what it appears to be, it seems that Archippus was a co-worker of Paul, that he'd been given a ministry, that the, that the church had recognized in him some gift, some calling, that he'd been called to that ministry, and that it seems like he's in danger of turning away from it because Paul has to encourage him to fulfill that ministry. So finally, uh, consider, I'm sorry, not finally, a second to last here. Uh, consider the value of those who push you in the Lord. I mean, it, it's all speculation at this point as to why, but for some reason it seems like Archippus is hesitant. Maybe he wasn't a great speaker. You know, not everybody that call, gets called to pastoral ministry or other types of ministry necessarily seem on the face of it like they have all these natural gifts. And it could be that he was lacking or maybe he just lacked self-confidence. Here we see one of those areas where we so need the body of Christ to come alongside of us. People in ministry and people that are working toward being in ministry, they need confirmation and affirmation. Archippus, I mean, you think about the people he knew. Who did he know? People like the Apostle Paul, you know, Epaphras, Epaphras, I'm sorry, um, Tychicus. You could go down the line. He knew a bunch of stellar individuals who were like just giants of faith. And it could be that he was comparing himself with those people. Young people that are going into ministry, they, they, they need people to come alongside and encourage them. Church, that's, that's something that everybody in the church collectively can do. To come alongside of somebody that aspires to ministry. Now, look, if, if they're not cut out for it, and you can find no encouragement to give them, okay, be silent. But, um, and there might be rare cases where you come to them and say, hey, you know what? Being a soloist in the church choir, maybe this is not you. You know, there's, there's times for that, I suppose. But we need people. We need mature Christians that will come alongside of a young person and say, man, I see that. I see that call on your life, and I just want to encourage you. You know, you did well at this. I saw you do this. I saw what you said there or heard what you did there. We, we need that sort of thing. I suppose it was this message as I was preparing it that made me think back to an old professor of mine at, uh, at seminary. His name was Cal Hansen. You all remember Cal? No, nobody here knows Cal Hansen, right? Nope, okay. Yeah, Cal was a big dude in the free church years ago. He was a first missionary to Japan from the, the e-free church. He ended up being a college president. But in his later years, he went to Trinity, my alma mater, and he was in the practical theology department. And he was just, just a stellar old guy. I just, I, I loved him. And, uh, and he was there at just a stage in, in my life as I was looking forward to launching and, and, and going into ministry and had my uncertainties. He was one of those people that just, in just the calmest and most assured way was able to kind of speak into my life and give me that kind of encouragement. You don't know what that's worth. 
It's an amazing, amazing thing. I, I, I had to Google his, his obituary, and, and, I, and I got a little teary when I was reading it because it just, it just took me back, and I thought, what? What a blessing to have somebody like that in your life. And there have been other people in my life along the way that you just, you're thankful for them. We can be that to one another. Okay, last one, then we're done. Consider the value of the sure word of apostolic grace. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What is Paul doing there? Why is he saying that? The, you know, that's kind of, it seems odd. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Like, what, what does that mean? Well, it means he wasn't writing the rest of it with his own hand. Uh, we believe that Paul often used what's called an amanuensis. There's your big word for the day, an amanuensis. Write that down. Don't ask me to spell it. Uh, yeah. Basically, and I know I've only ever encountered that word in theology, but it seems to mean a person who was like a secretary who took dictation. And so Paul didn't actually pen the rest. He wrote the letter, he didn't pen it, but then he signs his John Hancock to it at the end, and it's distinct. And so when they receive the letter from Colossae and they see this, it's like saying, hey, this is the word of the apostle Paul, the servant of Christ. This is the word of Christ through Paul to us. How do we know that we stand in grace? Paul says, grace be with you. Now that could just be, you could say, well, that's just a greeting. But I think it's more than that. I think Paul is saying, this, this, this is something I'm speaking concerning you that is true, that the grace of Christ is with you. How do we know? How do we know, church, that we stand in grace? How do you know for a fact that you stand in the grace of Christ? You know that because this is the word that has come to you, the word of Christ, the word of his apostles recorded for us in the scripture, the words of the prophets and the apostles there forever for us and they speak to us and encourage us to hold fast to Christ who is the substance. Amen? He's the one that we look to, but it's through the work of the apostles, through their word, that we, that we know this. How good is it that we have this partnership in grace? How, how good is it that we have the church, that we have the, the kingdom of heaven, that we've been included, that we've been brought, like that song said earlier, into the fold? Treasure that, Christian. Value that. Be greedy for it. We... Too many Christians look at church as an obligation. We're guilty of thinking of the church as that thing we do to log some time to get some credit with God so then we can go and live our lives as we please, right? It's like that little thing that we can tick a box and say, well, I did my part, and now God just let me have my peace and quiet and live my life the way I want to. When the reality is, this is the greatest treasure that you have. You say, I thought heaven and Christ. Yes, heaven and Christ are the greatest treasure, but, but this is his joint and ligament we're talking about. This is the means by which we, we grow. This is the means by which we console one another, encourage one another. We should be greedy for that. We should tre- Paul treasured the people of God. He did, and you can see that. It just bleeds through that. That ought to be our heart as well. 
So cultivate that. If you don't have Christ, and maybe that sounds good to you today, uh, this is not something you work yourself up toward, that you, that you make yourself good enough, and then you become acceptable, and we look at, you know, and then we cross-reference things and decide whether or not. No, it's, it, you come into this through faith in Jesus Christ, through the gospel. You have to turn away from the way you're going, look to Jesus Christ, and believe in him. And then you're saved, and when you are saved, you are incorporated, you're made one in Christ with his whole body throughout all time and space, through all eternity, you become part of Christ. And, uh, and then you become part of a local church. And you get, you, then you start to really experience that, that treasure. Um, and we would welcome you to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your people. Um, Lord, we are a work in progress, and many times, Lord, we're probably a lot more like John Mark at that moment that he turned back at Perga and, uh, and deserted the Apostle Paul. But, but Lord, we, we want to see that redeemed. We want to see our failures redeemed for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your kingdom, Lord. So continue to work in us. We trust that you do. We trust that, that, that you began a good work in us and that you carried on to completion. Lord, just give us, just give us a greater desire and a greater appreciation for your people, for this body, the, the body of believers, and, and Lord, we, we pray that we would not neglect the meeting of ourselves together, and, and that we would not sell it short, that we would see that for the treasure that it is, and Lord, we pray that we might be able to welcome others into this, into this fellowship, and uh, Lord, you make that so, we pray you'll draw them, that they'll hear the gospel of Christ who died for their sins and was raised the third day. And that uh, believing in him, they would have life in his name. We ask it in his name. Amen.